hey, why don't we flip a coin on the show? So we'll flip it, you know, you'll come up and I'll say, this is Alex, my son. Uh, and I'll be like, anything, I gotta cash him up. Awesome, man. So welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Craig. What's going on, Jude? Chilling, man. All right. Same here. Okay, so we're not going to take too much time for this intro, um, because this week... As promised at the end of episode 10, we have a really special interview with mm-hmm. Bob Mayer, who is the author of the official replacements biography, Trouble Boys, that we reference on any episode. We replacements, episode, yeah. <laughs> but even on episodes where we're talking about like who's could do, I feel like it comes up. Um, I can't, I mean, I, I speak for, I think both Jude and me, like I can't say enough good things about this book. Like I always tell people like, this is, uh, this is the, the best like rock bio I've ever read. And I've read a bunch of them. Um, it's just fantastic. And I, we're both so pleased to have Bob agree to come on and I know talks about, um, you know, the book, but also talks about the upcoming box set. And, uh, it's, it's, it was really fun to, to record and, um, I can guarantee if you're a replacements fan, it's going to be fun to listen to. But, quick, oh, go on. Quick background about our friendship. Actually, you mailed me my copy of that book as a gift. That's true. I found it and I was like, he needs this. Because I actually bought the book on um, like iBooks or whatever. Nice. It's on my phone. But like I need, to, I, I need a paper copy for reference because it's a lot easier than the phone. Um, but I, when it came out, I wanted it like right away. So I was yeah. like, oh, I can do this from my couch and buy it on, you know, <laughs> iTunes or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's a mandatory reading. Before we get to the reading, we're going to um, check in with what's new. Um, we received some really nice fan mail again from Rob in Melbourne. Yeah, thanks Australia. for reaching out, Rob. Yeah. Um, he... If you remember in the previous episode, I mentioned how I want to go to Australia and my family are all afraid of spiders and bugs. And he said, don't listen to your family. There's no scary uh, shit like spiders and snakes here in Australia. (laughs) And then he actually said, as soon as this COVID thing's done with, come on over. We'll go for a beer. I'll have a root beer, Rob. Uh, And (laughs) Jude's going to come with, Jude can come with me and he he can have a beer uh, and hit up Poison City Records which sounds really cool. They have a, um, they actually have a, a t-shirt for the record store that is in the Husker Du font. Um, there's a cafe called New Day Rising Cafe. Yeah, there is. Like, why don't I live here? This just seems like, <laughs> and another one called Zen Arcade. So it's like a country, I thought exiles, but I guess it's really just for Bob Mould Husker Du fans. Um, so yeah, so he wrote 
But then he actually told us he, after listening to the file under easy listening, he was thinking he has two copies of the deluxe CD. Um, it's got like a booklet. I, I think it might even have like a DVD or something. And he says, I don't need two of them. Uh, one of them he just, you know, found on sale and bought it yeah. um, you know, to give it a good home. So he asked if Jude or I would want it. And we decided the most fair way to do it would be to do a coin flip. So we have a special guest with me today. Um, my son, Alex, I've mentioned him before. He was, you know, 50% named after the replacements, Alex Chilton. Tell him what's up. Hey. So, Hi, Alex. What are we about to do here? I'm about to flip a coin. Uh, I'm about to flip a coin to see who wins the thing. The box set. Or it's a, a deluxe CD. Okay, so. So I call you, it in the air? Yeah, you can call okay. it in the air because I'm, you know, we have home field advantage. Um, so he's going to flip it. Heads. He dropped it. He's going to try it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he, he says heads. Or do you want to call it again? I'll call it in the air again. Okay, he'll call it in the air. Tails. <laughs> you know what they say? Third time is a charm. All right, you'll call it in the air. Okay? I will. Heads. 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 All right. Awesome. So, Rob, we will uh, we'll be sending you an email with uh, Jude's address. Thank you so yeah, much, Rob. Stoked for that. Out. Jude will take some pictures. We'll post them on the on the Instagram. Awesome. So, um, yes. Yeah. Do we have any other? No, I don't think there's any other announcements. No, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Why no corrections. We... we got everything right. <laughs> uh, I guess that was easy because the last episode was, it was an interview. interview yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So without further ado, yeah. Here's our interview with Bob Mann. We present Bob Mann. Yeah, thanks again for your, yeah. your time. We've been, uh, we're on, I guess this is, this would be the 11th episode. Yeah. Um, we started in pandemic times. <laughs> I was like, what else to do? Let's <laughs> uh, do a podcast. We've had this idea for a while. Right. And um, um, I'm like outside Philly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm outside Philly, but in South Jersey. I got you. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, yeah, the questions look good. So you know, nothing, uh, nothing I shouldn't be able to answer. So awesome, awesome. Yeah. Um, and um, oh, we were saying too, like we we figured like some of the stuff we know you've because I've watched you know interviews with you, especially I love the one with Worcester just because he's <laughs> such <laughs> I, a character. I, I've had the pleasure. He grew up in mm-hmm. uh, suburbs of Philly, like kind of near. Um, kind of yeah. near. So, like yeah. we we talked about that. Um, I would love to have him talk to him on here someday. But yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, because he uh, his his the band he was in at the time was managed by the replacements guys, and so he was in that world. Uh, you know, eighty six, eighty seven. He was kind of in replacements world as a nineteen year old drummer who you know kind of got hooked up with these guys from. They were actually from North Carolina, but which is ultimately sort of how he ended up in North Carolina. But um, or they moved to North Carolina anyway. But yeah, no, John's one of my best friends. So yeah, he's he's just a 
just a super fun guy, super nice. Like I said, I had the pleasure of, you know, getting to meet him a couple times and he's just, he's a pleasure and he's an incredible drummer. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I love that he's him and Jason playing with Bob. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Cool combination. Great. So, all right, Jude. Did, um, but I was just saying, so we've, you know, we may know some of these answers. And I'm sorry. Sure. If stuff I'll try and, as, as Westbrook says, I'll try and come up with some fresh lies for you. So. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess why don't, why don't we get started? Um, yeah, so uh, in an interview with John Worcester um, discussing the book, you explained that the book actually came out of an interview you did with Paul around 2004 um, when he released the Folker album. Um, and then you know in that interview that he was sort of like a different Paul and the kind of like contrarian, flippant, sort of like mythic version of himself that fans might think of. Um, would you be able to just say a little bit more about that 2004 interview um, and just how this book came to be? Yeah, it wasn't just that interview. It was a whole day I actually spent in Minneapolis. So I was got assigned to do a, uh, I interviewed Westerberg before and Tommy, you know, all on the phone at that point. Um, just as in my various jobs as a music critic or music editor at small weeklies. But then I, at this time I was living in Chicago, got a magazine assignment for the uh, now defunct harp magazine. Uh, uh, and they asked me to go to Minneapolis to interview Paul in person. You know, he was only doing a kind of pretty limited press uh, on that focal record. And so this was going to be a, uh, uh, I think it was a cover story, but maybe I can't remember anyway. So, um, so I had a day trip planned, you know, flight from Chicago in the morning, do the interview, spend the day in Minneapolis and fly back that night. Um, and so I started the, with the interview with Paul and we did it by, at a coffee shop by his house. Uh, it was actually right around this time, it was August or September of, of 04. And um, yeah, he was, uh, you know, having not met him at that point, it was kind of interesting to sort of compare the version of him I'd built up in my mind or, you know, that had been built up by reading the press or just, you know, kind of the image of him with, with the, with the guy as he was. And he seemed, you know, pretty, uh, at ease, at peace, you know, not certainly the kind of hellion Paul Westberg of the legend, but I also think he was in an unusual place there. I think it, it had been, um, you know, a matter of some months since his father had passed, uh, at that point. And I think he was just, as events like that. And, and his own son was, was very young at that point. Also, you know, he was a kind of a baby or an infant that he was raising. And I think between those two things, having a kid and raising a kid and, 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 and sort of going through, you know, the, the, the death of a, of a father, I think he was just probably more reflective uh, than he might have otherwise been. And also, as I say, he wasn't doing a lot of press, so it wasn't the kind of hamster wheel of press. So he was just, and it was on his turf. So he was more thoughtful. I, I felt, and, uh, more, you know, introspective in a way than maybe he had been at any other point, um, you know, prior in terms of, you know, doing an interview. And again, this was at the end of that cycle uh, of he had put out the stereo mono and done the solo tour before he would go back out on the road with that full band. So he was kind of in a, just, a, as I say, just an interesting place. And I caught him at a good moment and we had a good, you know, sort of chat and hit it off and uh, didn't think much of it beyond that. But that day I was in Minneapolis and I hadn't really been to Minneapolis a whole lot at that point. I thought I'd see, you know, what else was going on. You know, I had hours to kill basically until I had to go back to the, to the catch my flight. And um, so I called Peter Jesperson, uh, Twin Tone founder and former replacements manager. He was living in LA at the time. And I just said, I was going to say, hey, what's the good record source to go? Where should I go? I got some time to kill. And he said, well, I'm actually here in Minneapolis right now. Uh, and we're cleaning out the Twin Tone offices. This was the longtime Twin Tone offices on Nicollet. And um, uh, 
He said, come on over. So I went over there. I can't remember if I took a cab or walked. I think it was, I must have taken a cab. And this is pre-Uber. And uh, went over there. And sure enough, he's there cleaning out at the, after years of, I guess at that point, they'd been in, in one form or another, been in those offices for 20 plus years. Um, they were cleaning out the offices. And there was just all the, and I talked to Peter and Paul Stark was there. And they just had these boxes of archives, clippings, uh, documents, internal documents, you know, just the whole scrapbook and archive of, of the replacement's history. And, and so I just kind of sat there for a while talking to Peter and flipping through this stuff. And uh, so that was kind of serendipitous. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. You know, so I got to look at what was the, essentially the, the, the paper trail, the archive, the record of that kind of stuff. And then I still had a little more time to kill. So I went to Uptown in Minneapolis. And at that time, the Uptown bar was still there. And I you know, was getting uh, long in the day and I was getting a little thirsty. So I thought I'd have a drink. And, uh, and lo and behold, the person working behind the bar is Anita Stinson, Tommy and Bob's mother. So, um, you know, I would be lying if I said I'd had some like, you know, great epiphany right then and there, but certainly the experience with Paul, the sort of just dumb luck of Peter being there and, and me being able to go through and look at this, this incredible archive of material, historical documents, essentially. And then, going to see, you know, Anita in, in, at the Uptown Bar, I really kind of started to see the story of the band, the label, and the family, which is ultimately kind of what the book sort of became. It became about these multiple stories of, of this group and the, these different forces that sort of pulled them together and pulled them apart and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that was kind of the spark of the idea. It would be another couple years before I really got serious about it, but that was sort of the the moment of inspiration. One, because I felt like, okay, Paul is at a point where enough time had passed from the end of the band, from and I think from Bob passing, and 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 just you know, he was far enough removed from the replacements as a thing where he could actually look back on it, and then to see that there actually was a kind of um, you know from a biographer's perspective that there was a kind of paper trail, a record of things that you could sort of use to access and, and get the sort of specific info that you would need and want. And then just the kind of idea of, wow, there's actually a family story here too, um, in terms of the Stinsons and Anita and, and all that. And it just sort of germinated in my brain for a while and it took a couple more years and a, and a lot more steps to actually get to you know, write the book and, and, and get the band's participation and get the deal and all that stuff. But going back, that's kind of the, uh, that's the epiphany moment, I suppose, even if it wasn't an immediate epiphany. Yeah, because I remember being shocked when I found out that they were going to have an official, you know, authorized biography, because it just seemed like the kind of thing that wasn't going to happen. Like you had that um, all over, but the shouting, like oral history and, you know, um, our band could be your life, I guess, was sort of um, official because you had, um, you know, Chris Mars participating. Yeah, but I mean, all those things were, I mean, Walsh's book was good, but it was an oral history without the band's participation. It was much more of a, and I think it was much more Minnesota rooted in its perspective. Um, uh, Azrod's chapter was good, but I think it was you know, it only covered up to a certain point of their career and was coming at it from a very specific lens and perspective of this American indie movement and that era and, and bands fitting into this kind of thing, which replacements sort of did and sort of didn't. I know you, you, you may have questions about that later, but for me, it was much more um, just the idea that this is a band that had been, you know, it's not like they're an obscure band in terms of press. They were written about a ton uh, and did, got a lot of, particularly got a lot of press attention, maybe certainly much more than they got commensurate with their sales. 
And there was a lot of stories and legends and anecdotes and all that kind of stuff. But I never felt like anything that was out there really got at the core of what their story was, what their journey was. Um, and, you know, and, and I knew I'd come to know Peter a little bit just socially and through work stuff. And, and enough, I knew enough of the people that had been around the, the band uh, that I knew there was there was a story there that had yet to be kind of told or explored or investigated, and so that was really kind of my thing. Is like I never wanted to do just um, here's a story of a band or here's the wild and crazy replacements. It's like I wanted to know what was actually behind all that, and so that was kind of the the idea going in. Now I didn't know exactly one how long it would take to get to that story, and also two, you know, what would be sort of lurking there when I got got into it but but it was just a, a almost instinctive or kind of a just a sense that like yeah if I if I dig into this there's going to be something that's much more interesting than whatever the surface story has been all these years yeah yeah um um just so like so meticulously researched so um yeah many many listeners of this podcast might really you know are familiar with your book I would imagine um as with some other of the books that we'd mentioned so far. So Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life, um, the Oral History of the Replacements. Yeah, I was, I was curious, sort of both of those, um, Our Band Could Be Your Life and um, uh, sort of seeks to document the American like indie DIY scene. Um, uh, could you tell us a little bit sort of about the um, kinds of research that went into it to sort of capture all of the um, band's perspectives? Um, you know, not only obviously Tommy and Paul, um, who had uh, agreed to be interviewed for the book, but also, you know, Chris, who was who was interviewed for Our Band Could Be Your Life, but, um, you know, had decided to not be interviewed for um, Trouble Boys. Well, um, I actually did interview him. Uh, oh. A lot of what, what happened is uh, kind of the launching pad for ultimately doing the, the book, too, was I got a sign when the, when the uh, album issues came out in 2008, um, the first batch of them. I did a... a pretty long five, 6,000 word story for Spin Magazine on, uh, on the band and the kind of, you know, an overview of the band tied to the, the, the first four albums coming out. And I interviewed Chris for that. And Chris ultimately decided not to be as involved in the book as, or involved formally as the same way that Paul and Tommy were or Bob's family or Slim was. Um, and so, so yeah, for me, it was a question of, I mean, it, you know, just trying to present multiple kind of views. I didn't want it to be just the Paul Westerberg story or just the Bob Stinson story or just the, you know, uh, the indie years or the major label years. I wanted to take the the whole story and to do that, you know, that's where kind of the work comes in is you have to represent sort of everyone's perspective, you know, individually and as part of the group. And so that was, you know, probably why it took a long time. And, you know, in, in the sense that Chris wasn't involved, I still had to you know, write about him and write it, research it as much as possible. Same way with Bob, you know, Bob wasn't there really to do interviews. So I based it on, you know, I had a lot of other uh, writers interviews with Chris, you know, Holly George Warren gave me a, a great interview. And I, this guy, Steve Birmingham, who had, who had done some video interviews with Bob towards the end of his life. I had that. So I had access to sort of extant interviews with those folks and then talk to people around them and kind of, you know, it's a biography like that. It's, it's really a mosaic, you know, you're putting all the pieces together so you can sort of see, step back and see this bigger picture. And, you know, I feel like, whether it was Bob who obviously wasn't around or Chris who wasn't as involved, I still think, you know, I'm, I, I, I put the same amount of effort and emphasis on those individual stories um, as Paul and Tommy, who I had you know, certainly much more access to. Um, and, you know, to, to the same extent with Peter Jesperson and Michael Hill, who was their A&R guy at, at Warner Brothers, those guys were two real good uh, anchors 
for the story because they kind of, you know, they really were the closest professional people to them in, in the two halves of their career. And they were, you know, relatively <laughs> sober, both of them uh, uh, compared to the band anyway, during that time. So it was good to have, you know, some really clear eyed perspective on what was going on. Um, as to the kind of your, your first point, um, you know, the replacement story as it relates to our band could be your life or just the idea of them fitting into this DIY American indie movement. I mean, they, they are, they were and are a part of that, I guess, in some sense, uh, just because they came out of that milieu, you know, Twin Tone was kind of the classic American indie label of the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Um, they were part of that same network of, you know, college towns and indie clubs that were burgeoning at that time and sleeping on people's floors and the whole idea of left of the dial and all that thing. But the replacements are not a DIY band. They are maybe the least DIY band of all time in that none of them even drove. So they couldn't get to a gig without somebody doing it for them. You know what I mean? So, right, right. so they were never, you know, they were in many ways, the polar opposite of Husker Du. Um, it's a funny thing. I, I, uh, did, I know the guy attorney who represents Who's Could Do as a band. And when they were putting that big Who's Could Do box set, I, I kind of consulted with him a little bit and talked to him. And he was showing me some stuff that they had. And one of the things he had was a ledger, an accountant's ledger, you know, like the thing. And it just in this most meticulous of handwriting uh, and columns and, you know, pen and ink kind of thing, every dollar, every gig, every sort of thing that Who's Could Do. And this was, mold who had written this out and the idea of seeing that and sort of thinking of paul doing anything even similar it's just literally it's like the most opposite <laughs> so so yes you know the replacements were uh the least diy band of any of those groups but certainly they came up in that environment but you know in terms of their label association in terms of their touring circuit in terms of the, the bands that they were associated with um but I also think that uh, musically, there was probably um, a kind of different rooting because of the sort of peculiar nature and rooting of Bob uh, and Paul being, you know, guys were born at the tail end of the 50s. Uh, they had, uh, you know, in Paul's case, he had older siblings who were informing his musical tastes. Um, you know, they were both really playing music. Uh, pretty actively, more so Bob in terms of, or Paul in terms of being in groups before there was punk rock, you know what I mean? So I think, um, th whereas, you know, maybe Tommy is much more somebody who came up, even though he was started out playing classic rock and sort of boogie rock that Bob was into. I think he's, he was of the age where that, I think there could be more of an impact, although the replacements to, to a man, their tastes were not particularly orthodox, you know, in terms of being sort of strictly punk or strictly this or strictly that. So I think that's also um, a, a big difference in terms of how things, un why they were less like, you know, some of those other bands. They were just, uh, it, it was a kind of um, aesthetic and, and spiritual differences as well as just, you know, not being able to do some of the things that most DIY bands could do, like get to the gig on their own. <laughs> yeah, like we, you know, when we first started this podcast, I remember some, you know, people were like, well, why are you doing both? You know, what do they have to do with each other apart from being from Minneapolis? And we we're like, yeah, you know, we, we kind of get that. And the, their stories overlap a little bit sure. in the beginning. And then yeah, it, a little bit of the beginning in the middle. I mean, they were both signed to Warner Brothers. Uh, I mean, essentially, your person signed to Sire. It's funny, the, 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 you know, there's a, and you know, at that point, there was, I think people look back on it now. So there was all these bands. Minneapolis was a big scene, but it was still a very small scene, you know. I mean, uh, so they're obviously, and, and the Huskers were very pivotal, I think, 
in a sense in terms of taking the replacements on the road to Chicago, kind of exposing him to sort of this hardcore scene and circuit, which the replacements didn't particularly love, but that was part of it. And I think it, it certainly, uh, the replacements reacted to their experiences with Husker du in a big way and being on that circuit. And that's why you get something like, you know, the second record, the kids don't follow. And I think that's why also you get the replacements moving on from kind of punk and hardcore and the orthodoxy of that pretty quickly and moving into Hootenanny, which is this sort of grab bag of styles because they were sort of reacting to the sort of more dogmatic and aspects of hardcore at that time, uh, which, you know, again, they had a lot to do with the fact that they were touring, you know, playing outside of Minneapolis with, with Husker du at that time, 81, 82 in particular. So. Yeah. And we, we, we touched on that when we talked about stink and I think that's one of the things that endeared the replacements to me was their reactionary behavior because like Jude and I came from, you know, we played in DIY hardcore bands. Like I came into all this through, you know, hardcore music. And one of the things I loved about reading interviews with Paul was like, you know, he didn't like the whole idea of having these rigid rules. So like you said, by the time of Hootenanny, there's that legendary story of uh, them bringing like the test pressing to Jack Rabbit's radio show and putting on, you know, especially, you know, Jack, I remembered saying, um, and and Jack's going to come on here actually at some point we we talked. Oh yeah. Have his perspective on stuff. But um, he talked about, how they're like, oh, this is the follow-up to Stink. This is going to be this, like, you know, raucous, punk, hardcore, you know, hybrid. And then they put on the, you know, Hootenanny. Well, like I say, you know, uh, even on even on their whatever, their quote-unquote hardcore record, you've got something like White and Lazy, which is also sort of a blues song, or something like Go, which is right. a more of a kind of back. So, I mean, I, I think even, and, and, and I think it's in the book, uh, the late great Terry Katzman, who was heavily involved with Husker Du, I mean, he says says of Paul's, you know, kind of quote unquote hardcore songs and the stuff on Stink. That even when he was writing hardcore songs, he was almost sort of ironically commenting on them or making fun of them or you know, sort of a pastiche, uh, kind of a winking pastiche. And I think that's probably true to a certain extent. Um, but I think you know some of that was also you know Paul and the band very contrarian stance in general to anything, they reactive to anything. Uh, uh, but also I just feel like musically, they weren't as enamored with that stuff because they sort of, you know, were playing, Paul was playing in blues bands and boogie bands and, you know, Bob was into prog music and all that sort of stuff. So I think they just were not the kind to sort of limit themselves or be limited by, you know, a, a group or a scene or, a, or any kind of orthodoxy there. Yeah, I mean that, and like I said, it's it, but it's it's part of the charm. So, um, I know you've shared elsewhere that your your first exposure to the replacements was, uh, you know, January '86 when they played, you know, on the now famous or infamous uh, Saturday Night Live performance, and mm-hmm. then they were, you know, banned from the show. Right. What was it like seeing that on TV, and what was it about the performance that really stuck out to you and made it something that stayed etched in your brain, even as mm-hmm. a I mean, you were a young kid, right? Like 11? Yeah, like 11, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was context. It's funny, as I've written about that, you know, you hear about these other now legendary Saturday Night Live things like the Fear episode where Fear was on and like, you know, started a riot. And apparently just in seeing this recent Go-Go's documentary, they talked about um, their Saturday Night Live appearance and they were really like drunk and screwed up 
you know, when they did that. But you just hear less about those, you know, I think, because they've been kind of wiped from the internet to some extent, and the, and the replacements thing sort of survives a little bit. Um, and also part of the part of the reason I think that's lingered is, you know, the Saturday Night Live had a really good relationship with Warner Brothers at the time and got them on as a favor. So the fact that they sort of screwed up or messed around, uh, and it, it also happened at a time that uh, that show was on very shaky ground. So I think there was a lot much more sensitivity to uh, a, a bad performance or a performance if somebody was cursing or any of that. So anyway, but, um, but for me seeing it the first time, it was a weird thing because, um, you know, memory's a funny thing. I, I don't know if I'm imagining, but, but it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of live rock and roll um, on TV at that time. You know, even on like Letterman, which was sort of the edgiest show, uh, and I probably wasn't even watching that then yet. Um, you know, they wouldn't let bands perform. It would be like the singer and the guitar player would be playing with the house band. So it was always kind of a weird thing there. You would have bands on Saturday Night Live uh, somewhat. But, you know, most of the music on TV was, it, that was the heavy 80s lip sync era videos, you know, where people were lip syncing. There was just not as much, uh, you know, kind of live performance as maybe there had been in the 60s or 70s with like Don Kirshner's rock concert and things like that. So it seemed like to hear a band that was that unpolished and that loud. I mean, you know, when they came on the level, they had, you know, as the story goes, they had turned up their amps after they had got the sound level. So when you watch the Saturday Night Live thing, they come on super loud and then it goes down way low because the engineers are like scrambling and then it kind of finds level. There was just a kind of messiness about their performance as well as a vitality and an energy and a kind of insouciance of the way Paul was sort of on the stage and Tommy was not following his camera blocking and all that kind of stuff that just, was unlike what I had sort of seen or been privy to at that point, or that was, you know, that you could access on a regular basis on television. So not even knowing who they were or what they were, I knew this was something, you know, that sort of grabbed my attention and that there was something unique about it or, uh, you know, strange about it just in terms of the energy. And I think that even holds up now if you watch certainly the, the first performance of Bastards of Young. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's not, the kind of tight, polished, I mean, the, the sound, they sound great. They sound like the replacements did in, you know, early 86. Um, so it's not like, but it's not like what, what you would expect to see and certainly what I was seeing on TV at the time. So that's sort of, like I say, I, I always say it's really like, there was something about that performance that just kind of, you know, it's like somebody reaches out from the TV and grabs you by the shirt and pulls you in, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate. Like I was uh, the same age as you were, but a few years later when, um, you know, never mind broke big and it was the same i saw and it wasn't even it was i saw territorial pissings live mm -hmm. and as like a kid that young when you never experienced something like that before it's gonna stick with you whether now whether it sticks with you because you're like wow this is terrible or it sticks with you because you're like this is kind of cool i want to dig further so you know it's Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at that point, I can't even remember. I probably hadn't even seen anything like even much music stuff. You know, most of the stuff I would have seen, like, you know, documentaries, like I think that Complete Beatles was out. So you see the Beatles performances, but they're really tight, you know, and, and mostly it's just like the atmosphere of people screaming and that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's the Beatles. They're a very tight band, even though if they couldn't hear themselves. Uh, and, you know, I don't think I had really, I mean, obviously I wasn't old enough to really see anything that of the Sex Pistols, which wasn't, wouldn't have been performances, but clips and stuff. So, you know, you'd, I'd seen probably the bits and pieces that you normally see, but to see like, here's a new live performance and this band come out on Saturday Night Live uh, and it doesn't sound like, you know, the people you see lip syncing on Solid Gold or whatever was, was going on at the time. 
uh, it really was a pretty eye-opening and attention-grabbing moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're really biased in a sense because we are doing an entire podcast devoted <laughs> almost exclusively to the replacements. Greg and I have talked about in other episodes how when we both heard Husker Du, like we kind of had to sit with it for a little bit. Like I, I put on uh, New Day Rising for the first time, like when I bought the record as a kid, and I was like, it was on SST, so I was expecting it to sound like Nervous Breakdown because that was like my only framework for thinking. So I was like, right. what? what are they, what's going on, right? But um, they came to be one of my favorite bands. Um, but with The Replacements, the first album I heard of theirs was Pleased to Meet Me, um, which I want to talk some about the upcoming box set shortly. Sure. But, um, and just from the, the first note of IOU, I was just hooked. I was like, this is really intense. This is like everything I want out of a rock band. Um, so, you know, we, Gre Greg and I kind of have this sort of theory that there isn't really like a casual Replacements fan. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, obviously, you know, you not only wrote a meticulously researched and widely acclaimed book about the replacements, um, but also, you know, your readership suggests that the, just the diehard nature of replacements fans and, and, um, thinking also of the, like, you know, 2015, like reunion tour, just like the, um, uh, amount of people that were at the one show that I was at was, was huge. Right. Um, so I guess, what do you think it is about the replacements that sets them apart for listeners? Um, that sort of like generates maybe a kind of obsession. Is it their sound, the swagger, self-destructive well, behavior, all of it? I mean, yeah. I mean, at the time, I think, um, you know, there's different things. It's like, you know, a band exists within its own context, within its own time. And then it has an afterlife and depending on, and so the perception is different, you know. I think at the time, um, people respond to the replacements for the reasons they responded to any bands. They had good songs, they were a good band, they were engaging, charismatic on some level. Um, they were maybe part of this bigger movement and people tapped into that. I also think the reason, and, and you know, and I think in their afterlife, the replacements, in part because they weren't ever over-commercialized in the sense they didn't have a hit or a one-hit wonder or anything to sort of, that would uh, you know seem crass or commercial. They've they've kind of achieved this purity, or, or they've remained pure in a sense. Uh, and and then then you have all the other stuff that comes with them. I, mean, I think they're one of the few bands of that era that has a kind of mythic quality, a romantic status because of the behavior, or because of all these legends and anecdotes and those things. You know, some of them are true and some of them aren't, but they do sort of tend to create a kind of. Uh, a beautiful myth around the band that people are attracted to that. You know, we love our, our mythic stories and our heroes and our crazy tales and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I think also a lot of bands from that era, you know, don't have that. It was a, uh, in, in some ways it, the, the kind of indie bands that they were sort of first coming up with, um, you know, they didn't have the outsized characters or personalities or stories, uh, you know, or this kind of built-in myth about them. And so I think, you know, the replacements have aged better as a result of that. At the end of the day, the, the reason anybody gives a shit about the replacements is that the music was good. You know, if the music didn't stand up, if the songs didn't stand up, if the records didn't stand up, and if the, and if the journey of the, their creativity wasn't as compelling, I don't think we'd be talking about them in the same way, or they certainly wouldn't be as successful as they have been in their afterlife or in their reunion or with any of the projects that we've done, you know, in terms of reissues and things like that. I think, you know, it's, uh, it would certainly be 
I'm not saying it's a one-to-one -one comparison, but when you look at the replacements, eight albums made over basically the course of a decade, um, the, the, the transformative journey, creative journey is similar to the Beatles. You know what I mean? There's Beatles are starting to do an R and B kind of covers in a sort of bashed out garagey kind of way. And at the end they're doing, you know, uh, you've got Abbey road or whatever. And, and I'm not comparing them directly, but you go from sorry, Ma to stink to Hootenanny to the sort of middle period with let it be and Tim. And then the kind of made, you know, the more intensified and maybe poppier, major label era with uh, Please to Meet Me and then Don't Tell a Soul and then ending kind of with this almost like a singer-songwriter record in All Shook Down. I mean, that's a pretty heavy-duty sort of uh, creative journey in the course of eight, nine, ten years. Uh, you know, I would say it's like, you know, the guy who wrote Customer or, uh, or you know, Gary's Got a Boner also wrote Sadly Beautiful within a few years. So I think that also makes them really interesting and compelling and keeps them, uh, allows them to be discovered by not only one kind of fan, but multiple kind of fans. I mean, you guys know there are some people who, and a lot of them who screwed you fans, who only like the first two replacements records. They like Sorry Ma and Stink and maybe a little bit of Hootenanny. By the time it gets to Let It Be, a lot of people jump off or a certain segment jumped off even then. Uh, and then there are some people that don't care as much for the first couple records and they like, you know, Let It Be and Tim and Please to Meet Me. And then weirdly, there are some people that really only got into them later, you know, with their bigger success of Don't Tell a Soul. And they like, Don't Tell a Soul and Please to Meet Me. And maybe I'll shut down. And maybe they went and discovered Let It Be, but they don't really go all the way. So I think there's different kinds of replacements fans. Um, again, because I think that body of work is um, so fascinating and so different. And, you know, no two albums really are the same. I mean, you could say that Stink is a kind of... Uh, you know, a, a reactive aftermath of Sorry Ma in that first period. But after that, you know, it's like, you know, you could say that Hootenanny and Let It Be are similar, but there's significant differences. By the time you get to Tim, you know, it's his songwriting is just evolving. Uh, you Pleased to Meet Me, they record as a trio. Don't Tell a Soul is done with Slim. It's, it's a whole different, you know, every record is almost different, um, different personnel, different set of recording circumstances, different different sort of place, and song, Paul's songwriting is a different sort of place. So I just think, I think at the end of the day, it's the music and the material that is at the core of what continues to make them attractive and interesting and, and having new people discover them. And yes, it's certainly helped by um, the legend and the, and the image and the myth and all the stories and, you know, um, so I think it's a combination of those things. And then even within the music, I think, you know, Paul always said it, he said, there's a lot of bands that can do good ballads, thoughtful singer songwriter stuff. And there's a lot of bands that can rock, but there's very few bands that can do both uh, and do them equally as well. And I think the replacements are one of those few bands. I mean, uh, you could talk about, I think, I think the model for that for Paul was the faces, you know, they were the band that on record had some of the best, most affecting ballads and slower songs and these kind of really emotive things, but they were a rock and roll band as loose and ragged and uh, raunchy and loud as there ever was. And I think that was, you know, if, if Paul took anything from the faces, it was that. Um, and I think that's another reason. So there's, it's not just one reason, there's 10 reasons why I think, um, you know, they were successful at the time, why they've lasted and why they continue to be discovered. Yeah, I can definitely see that because if the music didn't hold up, then nobody, you know, nobody would be talking about them, especially, you know, people like Jude and I, who I didn't get to see them the first time around. Um, right. You know, I, I didn't even know they existed until after they were done. Sure. So, you know, one of the things I think when people talk about the replacements, especially people that I think only casually know of them, um, a lot of 
focus gets put on the substance abuse, whether it's, you know, the, the drinking and, and the shows they played while, while, you know, almost passed out drunk. Um, and then, you know, just other, other song, you know, the stories about them recording, please to meet me and, you know, vomit on the ceiling and, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, by the end of the band, I know the behavior changed a little bit. They, they toned down. Um, but what do you make of the, the legacy that substance abuse, uh, substance use rather has that they left behind? Like, do you think that the fans who just latch on to that one element of the band are missing a bigger picture or is that? Oh yeah. And I think, I think there's less of that now, you know, I think there was a period of time, probably really 85 uh, where, uh, and I kind of talk about it in the book where, you know, on that 84 tour, you know, th- there's a misnomer that the replacements, as soon as they got on stage, they were drunk. I mean, it was several years before the quote unquote drunken show started. You know, you have to remember the beginning, they're playing, short, fast songs that are probably more amphetamine fueled than, you know, loose and drunk. Uh, and, and, you know, they were an opening band. They were just getting started. They weren't screwing around on stage early on. I think it was really the end of 83 that that sort of became a little bit more of a common thing. And then once they got on the road in 84 and it wasn't every show. And I think that's the part of the story that's blown out of proportion, but they did play these, cover sets. And, you know, a lot of that didn't have to do, they might not have been, they might've been stone cold sober or hung over. They might not have been drunk when that, that was happening. So I think there's a, you know, there's some misconceptions about that, but uh, to the bigger point, I mean, yes, certainly um, they made it. And, and then I think there was a point when people came expecting to see that, you know, probably around 85 and 86 and even into 87. I think by, you know, there was a period where, people would hear these great legend stories of these legendary shows where they were drunk and legless and doing this and doing that. And they would come expecting to see that. And off, more often than not, they weren't like that. You know, um, that's not to say they didn't drink. That's not to say they didn't come from pretty heavy duty drinking backgrounds. And maybe in some cases, you know, had sort of alcoholic dysfunction, you know, that's all woven into uh, their personal stories as much as it is the band. I think, they made it and and certainly probably to get on stage and steal their nerves. They were drinking and doing stuff as, as, as most artists do. You know, I just think they probably, there was a period where they made it more a part of their presentation or it became more a part of their image than it does with, you know, most bands. I mean, I'm sure there were, there are plenty of bands that were uh, way more abusive of substances, uh, you know, and harder and different substances, but that, isn't what you immediately think of, you know, whereas with the replacements, that's probably one of the first few things because it carried into their performances a lot of times or seemed to anyway. I don't think it was always the case. I mean, sometimes they would throw a show because they were sober or hungover or Paul was bored or pissed off about something else. And, you know, it had nothing to do with drink, but people always assumed that's what it was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, and what I've tried to do certainly with the book and also with any of the kind of reissue projects we've done is, in a way, make that less the focus of, you know, what the replacement story is. It's really about this music and their creativity and them playing and all that sort of stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it'd be, it'd be whitewashing or lying to say that, you know, they didn't drink or that it wasn't um, in some, some cases fueling things or making things worse. But I, you know, that was, again, with the book, it was one of the things it was like, you always hear all these crazy stories. Replacements did this, replacements did that. They were drunk. It was like, okay, that's all great. That's the, what it is. The why are they this way was the thing I was interested in. Yeah. 
book. And of course, once you get back into the sort of family history and personal histories, then you find out, you know, I, I was always kind of a, not objected, but always felt like the, the version that the press and the myth and the image was, is like, look at these crazy guys doing these crazy things. And that was the end of it. Nobody asked the question why, you know, and yeah. they didn't want to answer that too, you know, but, um, so I think what the book to a certain extent, you know, tried to do as it came to Bob's life and Paul's family stuff and, and their own sort of demons that they were dealing with uh, as they were sort of living this band and growing up in the band. Because I know when we, we did an interview uh, with our, our friend, Sal, uh, Canestra, who had seen the band. He never got to see them with Bob, but he saw them um, almost a dozen times, uh, you know, from like 87 on. Right. And we touched on the whole thing about the drinking because I was saying that like me, I don't, I don't drink. And when I tell people, like I've had people when I say their placements are one of my favorite bands, so like, but you don't even drink like all, you know, the songs. And we, we talked about like, there's so much more to them than that, that that's just a small piece because like you said, if the songs didn't hold up, none of this would even matter. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, there was a point basically from 83, if you want to get a specific thing, because Tommy didn't really drink until the end of 83 or thereabouts. So there was always one person pretty sober in the band, you know, kind of holding things down. And then when Slim came on, I mean, Slim certainly drank to a certain extent and, you know, was part of the job, but he was always there kind of holding things down. So there's really only a period of 84, 85 that it was, you know, fairly consistently could, you might get a, a weird show or whatever. And certainly some on the 87 tour, but I think really from 87, once Slim was in the band, that wasn't, you know, they were always a little loose and they were always a little lubricated, but that was part of the thing. And then I think the early years, I don't think that, uh, you know, you know, I think the first mention of anybody is that there's a radio interview with them in 83 on the local thing where this DJ says, well, you guys have been, you know, kind of people come see your shows, but you're a little drunk up there and whatever. So, you know, I think it took a few years to kind of get that. And then within a few years, it was gone by the time Slim was there, or at least sort of certainly reduced. I think there was a middle period where things were pretty crazy, you know, but, uh, but I don't think that should be or really is what defines the band. But, you know, for better or worse, it's, it's part of their legend, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, another sort of thing about the band's legacy is that your book really carefully outlines the way that they danced right up to the edge of mainstream success a lot of the time, like during their career, thinking particularly of like, you know, the, the sections of the book about like the Tom Petty tour, um, right. how they would do the, the thing where they would like mimic his stage moves when they were opening up the shows and then be like, you know, oh, you'll love it when he does it. Right. right. Um, so uh, what, what do you think would have happened had the band sort of like really like gone for it, so to speak? Like if they tried to sort of not sabotage themselves, if you see it in that way, like in the I mean, I, I ultimately I don't. I mean, yes, certainly could they have done things that would have, you know, improved their chances of having been successful. But at the end of the day, in that era, success is about having a radio hit. And that's you know, no amount of glad handing with programmers or no amount of muscle, you know, from the record company that they put behind your thing is going to make a hit unless it's a hit to a certain extent anyway. Um, and, you know, they, they, they almost had a hit with all be you. Um, but I think, you know, they're the, the, the reality of that is it's certainly true. They, they did things that were, you know, self-sabotaging, uh, 
but I also think at that time the music industry apparatus was kind of had very um, had had limitations for what a band like the Replacements could do. You know, the reason they were on the Tom Petty tour was it was the only way they thought. Well, we want to put get this band in front of more rock fans, people who might want to buy their records or become their fans. So, when a ton of American rock bands of that style that were big in the 80s, you know, I mean, you had your heavy metal bands and your glam metal bands and, you know, your John Mellencamp's or your Tom Petty's, you know, so they put them in front of Tom Petty's audience thinking they would whatever. And certainly the band, you know, did not go out every night trying to win the crowd over. In many cases, they were trying to do the opposite. So you could say, yeah, that sort of, that was a form of self-sabotage. But I don't know that if they had been great every night that they would have sold you know, they might've sold a few more records, but it wasn't going to make them million sellers. You know, um, it's possible that it would have improved their chances. But I think by that point there were things going on within the band that were, you know, they had been going on for 10 years and they hadn't had that success. And I think earlier the era of Tim or even pleased to meet me, you know, Tim, the label they had just signed. Those are like kind of the places were the first band of that out of that American indie thing to really be signed uh, to a major label. And they just didn't know how to work them. The songs were way too rough for radio. They'd, didn't know how to build them. So they got them on Saturday night live. Yes. You can say again, there they screwed up and you know, whatever, but I don't think, I don't think, you know, if they'd have played better on Saturday night live, they were going to have a hit and sell a million records. I do think where their self-sabotage probably prevented them is they were difficult to work with and imposing probably to work with. And, and also probably there was some trepidation on the part of the record company in terms of, prodding them or pushing them or resistance from the band. So maybe they didn't work with exactly the right people that could have given them a hit, but I'm not entirely convinced that, you know, uh, they would have, there would have been any scenario at that time that they could have had a hit. It's funny, Scott Litt, who was going to work with them and he ended up working with REM and generating a lot of hits for them. He said, you know, there was something about Paul's songs where, uh, you know, even like Alex Chilton, which is a hit song, you know, that closest thing, I think, to a, a hit song that they could have had in that era. And it was successful on alternative radio, uh, but alternative radio was not the force it would be in a few years. You know, there's all these like little things about the format of radio at the time that made a difference. You know, it's like, again, Paul always says that we were, we were, you know, five years ahead and 10 years behind. And I think that's true. You can almost see a band like The Replacements having been very successful in the mid 70s, uh, the way uh, kind of a Mata Hoopa was, or, the, you know, a lot of the bands you like that were these, or the faces or whatever. And one song, they're on radio, album oriented rock. They have great shows, all that kind of stuff. Or if they'd have waited a few more years, they would have been swept up in that alternative uh, rock boom that Nirvana kind of, you know, was representative of where alternative radio was very powerful and they were playing things like pavement on commercial radio or whatever, you know. So there is a there is a thing of, yes, they were out of step, out of time. Yes, they sabotage themselves. But I also think there's something inherent in Paul's songs. One, they are probably too smart and too um, specific to have that kind of mainstream appeal. Um, and, you know, Scott Litt said, he was talking about Alex Chilton. He said, you know, that's a great song. If it had been called Buddy Holly, it might have been the Weezer hit, you know? Uh, and, and he also said something that, you know, Paul has the thing of like, he has, he has the 80% of the thing that makes it an amazing song, but he's missing the 20% that makes it a hit, um, which 
yes and no, but I, I think a good example is in this recent, I don't know if you guys have seen the recent Go-Go's documentary, but the song Vacation was originally a, a song by the bass player and, uh, and her previous band, the Textones, uh, uh, Kathy Valentine. And there's a version of it that you hear that it's essentially the same song, but then of course the, the Go-Go's took it and, and, and the other women of the band kind of reworked it and they rewrote it a little bit. And it is, it's the, there was 80% of a great song, but it was missing the 20% that made it a hit. And so that's a lot of what I think, you know, maybe is the difference. I think Paul's songs are just, they, you know, certainly in that era, they were operating on a different level. But I also think there was always stuff going on with the band and within the band that maybe uh, hurt their chances of having a hit. But ultimately, I just don't, I just think, as I, as I always say, I think the replacements were playing unintentionally or intentionally, they were playing the long game. They were never going to be a success in that moment, but they were going to be a success for all time, which I think the music now bears it out. You know, when you cut forward to um, 2015 or 2014 or whatever, and they're on their reunion tour and they are playing in front of 15,000 people in New York or Minneapolis and 15,000 people are, you know, singing back those songs to them as the kind of anthems that they are now. Uh, that tells you that, that those songs could have been hits, but that the environment or the production or the moment wasn't right, but ultimately uh, they were every bit as good as, as you know, a lot of people thought. And, uh, and so I think, you know, they're stars, they're, they have their hits, uh, but it wasn't, you know, on the charts in 1985, it's kind of for, for you know, for forever, really. Yeah, like I always looked at them sort of like as in a weird way, like the American counterpart to another sire band, like the Smiths, where you have these like amazing songs and this amazing lyricist, but it's almost too smart for like your average person. So like yeah. same thing, like if the Smiths reunited, I'm sure the place yeah, is places- really- yeah. yeah, but I think the Smiths had some hits, you know, in England. Of course, it's a different thing. You know, America, particularly at that time, much bigger country, much harder to crack, much more radio was, uh, the radio setup is totally different. And I just think, so I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, like th- their best shot was I'll Be You. They had Chris Lord Algae mix it. It was a kind of a hit-ish song and they got it onto the charts to number whatever it was, 40 something, 49 or whatever, 57. Uh, and, um, I don't think if they had gone and had a great attitude and shook radio programmers hands that that was going to make that a top 10 song. You know, I just think, uh, I just think, you know, the, the, some, some bands are destined to be successful in their time and some bands are destined to be successful more for all time. And I think the replacements are in the latter camp. Yeah, I mean, it's almost hard to imagine their legacy being anything other than what it is. Isn't there a, I, I might be misquoting it, but isn't there a Paul quote that's something to the effect of like, we want to be famous without being professional. We want to be a cult or something like that. He said that in 1980. Okay. Uh, it was one of the first interviews he did. So <laughs> that there, you know, that I don't think it was entirely accidental. I think there was always some sort of subconscious intention there, you know, um, or, or limitation, you know, Paul and those guys, you know, you mentioned the Petty tour, what they were reacting to was not, I mean, they actually quite liked Tom Petty and, and all that stuff, although they had their problems with Petty's crew. But I think what they what they reacted to in seeing Petty and seeing big time successful professional rock and roll was the sameness of it, was the repetition, was that you had to kind of 
present this thing because you're playing for a different crowd every night and people have laid their money down and it's a fan service ultimately. And, and those guys just were inherently incapable of, of that, you know, of faking it. Yes. But also of, they just weren't built for that kind of thing. You know, uh, temperamentally, uh, they got bored very easily. They didn't like to repeat themselves. They didn't like to sort of meet expectation in that way. And, you know, that's not how you have a successful professional big time music career. You know, you have to do those things. I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, there's even an exchange in the, in, in, in the, there was a Rolling Stone story where Rolling Stone went out with some reporters went out with Petty that summer on that tour. And, you know, they say something, uh, there's a, they overhear a conversation between the replacements and Petty and, and it's like, Oh, you know, we still do something about, you know, how they do have to do breakdown every night and, and Petty says, oh, you should come out and sing it so I don't have to do it. And, and, you know, Tommy's almost like, oh, why do you do it? And it's almost like, well, we do it because people are plunking down, you know, 40, 50 bucks to come see us do it. You know what I mean? They didn't even understand that, really, or they didn't think that way. <laughs> because they came up in this, out of this punk rock, post-punk indie rock world where, you know, you kind of were sort of doing your own thing or whatever. And some of it is just temperamentally, they were just not the kind of guys to do that. So, I mean, I think, can't remember where I was going with that, but basically that I think they got a by the time they got to 89 and don't tell a soul and they were kind of making an effort to make it commercially uh, and seeing Petty and being sort of on the road with him that summer, they realized, eh, this is not what we do. And we couldn't do this really, even if we wanted to. And if we did do it and we got successful, we'd probably be miserable. And I think that was kind of the realization that essentially ended the band. They did end up doing the record, but after that tour, Paul basically quit the group or was trying to break the group up and he got kind of talked back into it. And, you know, they did another record essentially and, and another tour. But I think, you know, there's a moment, uh, which I, I think I included in the book, although I maybe downplayed it, but where he told me he would sort of stand out there in the wings and watch Petty play the waiting. And, you know, the crowd would sing back the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Part or whatever. Hey, hey part. And, and he just sort of, he kind of, like knew that this is not what we're going to do. This is not what we're about, you know? And he says it in the interview, you know, in some of the interviews I did, when he said, you know, we just weren't made of the stuff that makes popular music. You could argue that now they are popular music and, you know, but, but again, not, not that kind of immediate popular music. And, and uh, so, you know, there's that. And, you know, if they'd had a fluke hit, you know, they, they were very close with the Georgia satellites who were a, a great band who I think, they get overshadowed because they had this one fluke hit in this video and, you know, and, and it, it, and it, which really isn't representative of how great a band they were and how great a songwriter Dan Baird was and is. Um, and if the replacements had had a fluke hit, you know, I asked Paul that the first, one of the first times I did the first interviews for the book, I said, what if you'd have just, you know, what if I'll be somehow caught fired, been a top five song, you know, and you guys had were whatever comes with that kind of success. And he said, you wouldn't be here. Meaning that, part of what makes them interesting, part of what makes them compelling, part of what's kept them is the fact that they didn't have some, some fluke hit or some hit song or were commercialized in that way or remembered in that way or no better known or whatever, you know? And I think that's, that's true. And, you know, so, but, but, I, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I think you said it and I think I try and make the point in the book though over a lot of times is no matter Ultimately, I don't think there was probably at that time in that environment, in those circumstances, anything they really could have done short of just having an undeniable hit, you know, coming up with some undeniable song. And even then, there's just something within them that would have 
you know, like I say, it's the 80%, it's that 20% that would have, would have, you know, Paul's not going to dumb down his stuff and they're not going to do certain things that you need to. And even if they did, would they, you know, even when they had the kind of minor hit with I'll be you, they almost resented playing it. You know what I mean? They just, from, from, from the top down, you know, there's just no way that I think their career could have gone any differently. Um, but you know, everybody, you know, it's always a, a what if story with them too. Uh, you know, that's part of it. But, but, you know, I think things worked out the way they were supposed to work out ultimately. Yeah. Like I think, like you said too, a lot of it is about the time. Cause had they been like around the Nirvana t- I mean, cause you know, Nirvana were the same way they, you know, I, Kurt Cobain, I'm sure got to the point where he resented playing smells like teen spirit and stuff like that. But the thing with the replacements too, is like, I could never see, even though I think Paul can write even better songs. Like I could never see them being like the goo goo dolls who I'm actually a, a fan of, but you know, they kind of took that formula, especially on the later stuff and polished it up a bit and then, you know, ran with it and wrote, you know, hit songs, but I don't, I don't see Paul ever doing like, iris you know yeah you know it's interesting you mentioned that i one of the interviews i did for the book that i didn't include was i interviewed lou giordano who produced all that google doll stuff their kind of hit stuff you know even before their hits but continued and he worked with paul on his eventually album and so he knew paul and he also knew the google dolls and he said when paul did that song with the google dolls which was kind of a mailed back and forth like you know i can't remember johnny had the music and paul had the words or vice versa but anyway it was there was a they collaborated and they had that song and it was after that record that they started to have hits. And Lou Giordano told me, he said, Johnny took in that experience, Johnny took the good stuff from Westerberg and commercialized it. And then boom, 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 hit, 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 hit. And they, you know, and certainly Johnny sounds like him and all that stuff. But I thought that was an interesting thing, you know, to hear the producer say that was a kind of, it's like he almost sucked the, <laughs> sucked all the good stuff out of it, but then sort of shined it up and turned it into Iris and name and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause even those songs, like you can hear, like I, like I saw um, a couple years ago, I saw the Goo Goo Dolls do, um, dizzy up the girl front to back and as i'm watching them i'm like some of these songs like broadway like that's that's a paul west like that's paul westerberg right. and right. all that stuff but they 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 basically had that other 20 percent to yeah. to turn it or in. the willingness or the willingness and also the time was right i mean you know like i said with alex chilton for example like that was a song that was a hit at uh you know alternative radio but in 1987 alternative the a there weren't that many alternative stations b their playlists were still wide so it's like you know for a song to be a hit it has to get played multiple times a day and so like that radio format did not exist whereas alternative radio in 1991 92 93 94 there were 10 times as many alternative stations they had tighter playlists just like you know top 40 stations essentially just playing alternative hits so a song could become a hit in that sort of environment in that in that radio format world of the early to mid 90s where in 87 having an alternative radio hit didn't mean anything in terms of pushing your sales so i mean that's just a kind of the 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 luck bad luck of history or, or timing of they weren't around to do this thing you know whatever and then you know they weren't they they couldn't have lasted you know 15, you know, it's an amazing thing. Very few bands, especially in those days, now more so because you got the internet and touring is different. But in those days, it's very rare for a band to last 10, 12 years and continue without having tangible commercial success. Uh, you know, those guys were, you know, living at home basically until 
told Tim, you know, so, uh, and they didn't really get any money out of Tim. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it's hard to keep plugging away at something without any tangible reward and not change something up. Uh, you know, and of course they, they did get bigger into uh, don't tell us all to a certain extent, but that wasn't because they were making money. It's the budgets doubled and they were going into debt to the label. So, I mean, they were seeing, they were always on the way up, but it was never quite enough. And so the fact that they lasted, you know, 11 years basically and made eight albums without having you know really any kind of hits i think that's kind of a small miracle in and of itself you know they, they had a kind of a restart when they got on the major label um but but you know so it was they, they couldn't have lasted into the alternative era they couldn't and you know the other thing is by the time you know they broke up whatever six months before nirvana hit it big but by the time that the replacements were 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 uh, you know in 91 they weren't making the music of 87 or 85 and rocking out like that. So, you know, they weren't even the same band. So like people say, Oh, if they could only hung on for another record, they would have been huge. It's like, no, they, cause they weren't making that music anymore. Um, yeah. No, in the book you touched on it, that like Tim comes out and the label says, this is too loud for radio. And then all shook down. They said, this isn't loud enough for what Yeah, there was one guy, Michael Hill tells that story. It's a great story. Cause he, you know, in 85, he's like, Oh, Michael, this is, these are great songs, but they're just, they're too rough for radio. And then, you know, flash forward five, later, five years later, the exact same guy or six years later, the exact same guy says, Michael, these are great songs, but it's just, it's, it's too soft for radio. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, you know, legitimately there, there was, uh, uh, there was that, you know, and like I say, Paul is always is usually right about these things. They were, they were 10 years behind and five years too early, you know, basically. Yeah, so thinking of the replacements legacy, as you were researching and writing the book, the band reformed, did those reu the reunion tour, and then broke up again. Um, do you uh, have any sort of? Are you hopeful that they might still play again someday? Um, I probably was more so when the book came out. You know, because when the book came out, it they had, it was just the previous summer. They were only had split up whatever again for like six months. I don't know. I mean, I think. There, there, there's a reality there too, in terms of, you know, Paul's 61 years old now or 60 years old. Uh, and so is he going to want to go out and, and do that? He always could. I mean, he could certainly do solo shows. He can, he can, they can do it. There's certainly interest. I mean, you know, they were, they were headlining, like I say, arenas and doing big sold out club tours and our theater tours and all that kind of stuff. So you know, certainly the demand would be there. And I know they've had offers to reform or do one offs and things like that. Will they? I don't know. You know, I think the more time passes, the less likely it is. But obviously, you know, we have since they split, you know, with the book, but then also with a series of issues we've done for Rhino, we've dug into the vault, um, new product in most cases. And so, so we're trying to keep the, the flame going and, 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 and offer fans something you know, in, other than them performing live, that, that kind of adds to the story and adds to the legacy and the discography and, you know, gives people more creative ways or new ways to appreciate the band. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm hopeful there's other, other ways you can kind of keep the story going. I don't know if, if, if it's necessarily going to be more shows for them, but, but, you know, but I, there was no guarantee they would ever reunite it the first time. So with, with, with Paul and with those guys, you can never say never. Yeah. That's kind of was, even as a fan, I'm kind of like, well, if it doesn't happen again, I'm glad that we had a chance to see him. Um, it was, was a good way to go out. You know what I mean? I think the, the, the response to those, to most of those shows, you know, there was a couple of festival dates that were a little weird, but I think the response and their performances were so good that it's sort of like, that's leaving on a high note. Why sort of take another chance? But um, I would love to see them play 
I had a, actually just had a dream the other night that they, they reform and they were playing and maybe it's cause I read, read, you know, you gave me some good questions you were going to ask and I must've been in my head and I was like, Oh, uh, they are playing again. <laughs> but but uh, for now, it'll just be a dream. We'll see. Yeah. Like, cause like you said, it's like, and well, right now nobody's playing either. So even right, right. <laughs> those wheels in motion, it's like something that, you know, I'm sure takes a lot of planning and, I know as a fan, when I found out that they were reuniting, I did not see it coming. Um, I felt like it had been talked about. You know, they did those two new songs in 2006 for the... Uh, right, and they, they'd done the thing with for Songs for Slim. You know, I mean, that was really what pushed them to do the the reunion, I think, initially anyway. And I mean, I talk about that in the book a little bit is, you know, when Slim fell ill and they got together to kind of cut that that EP to to help benefit him. You know, that sort of got the thing going. Also, I think there was things going on with Paul and Tommy in terms of their personal lives that they were both kind of at loose ends and willing to sort of consider it. But I mean, you know, they get offers. They've been getting offers every year, probably since the mid-2000s to reunite at festivals and things like that. Um, but I think it took something like Slim getting sick and then having them, them kind of getting together for him. And then I think even sort of Slim kind of compelling them to say, come on, you know, you should do this and, and, and do these shows. Uh, do some shows and play together again. And I think, you know, they did it and it was, the reception was great and the shows were good. And I think for Paul, he doesn't necessarily isn't one to go back and do things again if he's done it once and it worked out, you know, so, um, but I don't know, you know, I mean, even those shows that they did, those Riot Fest shows, I mean, there was talk of it and then it sounded like no way is it happening. And the next thing you know, they announce it. So who knows? Yeah. Like I said, I, I would be shocked if they did more, but it is what it is. Um, so when, when I finished reading Trouble Boys um, the first time, I was like, this needs to be a movie. Now, I've heard some rumblings about, like, I might have even been on one of the Facebook Paul Westerberg groups. I've seen some random articles. Is there any talks of, like, a biopic? Uh, I mean, there's, there's always talks. That stuff, that whole world is such a, you know, it's like – you find out that so many projects get considered or optioned or whatever. And it's like, you know, the very lowest percentage actually happens. So yeah, there's been some talk, but nothing as of this point that's super substantive. So we'll see who knows. I mean, yeah, that's, it's not even worth sort of speculating because it's so sort of remote, the possibility. Yeah. Cause they're, those, those movies are tricky because you know what I mean? Sometimes they work and a lot of times they're just like, yeah, I mean, I've always tried to, I mean, certainly if I've always tried to, with everything we've done, kind of make sure that, you know, just as Trouble Boys, I don't think was your standard kind of rock bio and just like the reissues have a certain level of quality and attention and, you know, care and just they're, they're good. I try to make sure anything uh, that I have a hand in replacements related is going to be particularly good that's why the book took 10 years and that's why some of these projects are you know very intensive efforts to sort of make them happen like dead man's pop or whatever you know um so you know if something were ever to come to pass in in, in that regard in terms of an adaptation i i do my best to make sure it was unlike any you know your typical rock film or rock project so hopefully but we'll see and was there ever any talks of having like an official documentary yeah, there was, there, there was and is, uh, you know, we got, I think, pretty close to getting started, but how do I put this? The replacements world is, is funny in that, you know, things run hot and cold, uh, people's desires to do things or not do things. So it's always, you got to, you know, 
both Paul and Tommy, you know, they also have other things going on or are in different part, places in their lives. So it's like, you know, to revisit that stuff, particularly they've already done it several times now, you know, between the, between me researching the book, writing the book, following up on the book, and then, you know, going back to some of these projects, you know, they're not the looking back type of guys, either of them. And so I think certainly there's interest. Certainly we could do it. We were, I think we were close to a couple points to getting started. My hope is ultimately there will be something like that, but there's nothing imminent right now. Because they seem to be like um, pretty pop. Like it seems like, you know, you talked about the go Go's documentary and it seems like there's a real like desire for that. Oh, it, I mean, it's not, it's not a question of whether we could, I mean, we could, we could do it start tomorrow. And we've done a lot of like kind of prep work on, on it in terms of gathering footage and stuff like that. So my hope is eventually we'll do it. Uh, but, um, but, you know, we've been so busy just, you know, band finished the reunion, the book came out, then bang, 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 we've done these reissues. And, you know, that takes a lot less effort for them or involvement from them. It's just more me and the guys at Rhino and uh, Jason Jones, my partner, who's the head of A&R over there, kind of dealing with that stuff. So, you know, so far, it's kind of those things have been easier to get get going, um, you know, a doc or film or anything that's more involved. So so we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, like all these things, I, I see all of that as kind of an extension of, 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 of the book and trying to, you know, just preserve and expand the legacy and of the band. Yeah, well, sort of speaking of like Hollywood affiliation, the actor Bob Odenkirk has publicly praised Trouble Boys and he's gone on record like repeatedly of his yeah. adoration of the replacements. Have you and Odenkirk ever met or discussed the band at all? Yeah, yeah, uh, I've met him. Uh, you know, we had some sort of uh, email communications. He was very generous about the book and some interviews in Rolling Stone when it came out. Uh, and then he actually recently did another podcast where he talked, picked the replacements in my favorite album podcast. He talked about the replacements first record and talked about the book. And uh, uh, yeah, so I've, I've known him a bit, uh, really amazing, wonderful guy, super talented. I mean, you know, that guy's been like, uh, it's only more recently, you know, with Better Call Saul that he's kind of, I guess, come into his own as a kind of leading man, you know, guy carrying a series. But of course, people who are comedy nerds, you know, know him from Mr. Show. And, and even before that, Saturday Night Live, and he wrote some, you know, very iconic skits, you know, Chris Farley, the Matt Foley motivational speaker, you know, going back. So he's an incredibly talented, super influential guy, somebody I really sort of, I've always admired. So the fact that he liked the book was, was very flattering. And, uh, and yeah, we actually met uh, finally just last summer, about a year ago this time um, at an event in LA, um, kind of a backyard rock and roll for charity kids event thing that Tommy actually performed at. And so we finally got to meet and talk, but I've, I, we've had mutual friends. We have a number of mutual friends that we've known over the years and stuff. And even he, he was a fan of my wife's band way back when and did some events with her in, in LA. So, you know, I kind of have known him a little bit, um, but, uh, but yeah, just really amazing guy. And he helped me out with something not replacements re related, just one of the very best and nicest people like in show business. But I've been very lucky in that a lot of um, people I admire, particularly, you know, I'm a big comedy fan, like, uh, Joel Hodgson, who started Mystery Science Theater, he he was a big fan of the book, um, and I met him at an event that we I was did with you know again another kind of L.A. charity Hollywood type thing, but he did his amazing thing, and uh, the guys from the Kids in the Hall, um, I know Bill Hader, Fred Armisen have read the book, so you know it's uh, you know people who I think a lot of comedians you know I always say comedians want to be rock and rollers, rock and rollers want to be comedians that kind of thing, so that, I think there have been a lot of um, really cool people who, whose work I admire, who have read the book and have dug it, you know, and who were replacements fans well before that. But, um, but yeah, definitely Odenkirk would be top of the list. So. 
Yeah, when I saw, you know, whenever uh, there's one of these new reissues coming out, he's always like tweeting about it and talking about his excitement. It's cool because like you, Jude and I have been fans of his since Mr. Show. Like when we were in a band uh, and touring in a, like a little crappy van, we would like quote Mr. Show. And then to find out that like Bob Odenkirk is this massive fan of this band. Oh, and he knows, he knows his shit. If you listen to that, um, that, that My Favorite Album podcast where he's talking about Sorry Ma, I mean, his, his understanding, I mean, first of all, his connection, how deeply he's connected to that record, how much he loves it, but also how knowledgeable he is about um, the band and the songs and what makes it so good. I mean, it's, it's not like, oh, he's like a casual fan, like you're saying, there's no casual fans. He's definitely not a casual fan. No, not at all. But and just like, really, really, really thoughtful and erudite in terms of talking about what, what makes that record in particular, but in general, the replacements music so special and what, why it means what it does to him. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's always nice to, uh, it's always nice to have people, you know, like your stuff, especially if they're like, you know, as you find like the, the, the reactions I've gotten, like of, of whatever quote unquote famous people or celebrities liking the book, it's all been like really good celebrities and people who I actually like. So that's, that's nice. That's yeah. nice. And just speaking of the, the reissues, it seems like we had, you know, we had Trouble Boys in 2016. Then we got the Live at Maxwell's. I know you worked on that. Yep. Uh, Dead Man's Pop. Yep. And, you know, you've, you've talked about all those, so I'm not going to spend too much time on those because anybody can, you know, see other interviews. But sure. uh, this October, we have a super deluxe version of Please to Meet Me. Can you talk about how that came to be? and? Obviously, I mean, there's all kind of a bigger, uh, bigger picture. I don't know if it's the right word, but we, you know, when I, as I was always doing the book, part of the research was going through the archives, the audio archives and through the Warner archives and, and the Twin Tone archives and just seeing what was there. And a lot of stuff I just needed to check for reference or I was looking for, you know, bits and pieces. And so I, I did a pretty thorough, maybe the first thorough kind of examination of, of the archive and, or archives. And out of that, I, you know, I kind of came up with a thing of like, hey, you know, if, if you guys want to get serious about doing a um, series or doing some archival projects, you can do X, Y, and Z. You know, obviously, uh, Rhino had started in the wake of 2008 of them redoing the bonus deluxe or the expanded album reissues. There was some thought of they were going to follow that up with live projects and do that stuff. But then there was a regime change at, at, at uh, Rhino. And so the people who were kind of involved with that left and Rhino's kind of focus changed for a number of years. And so that kind of went away. Um, there was a new regime put in Rhino around 2015. And so we kind of started talking even before that, uh, started talking about trying to do something, you know, meaning I was talking with the band and their management of like, here's what you could do if you decided you wanted to do this, starting with live at Maxwell's, because I thought that was just, you know, kind of an obvious thing. It was done it represented, you know, the original version of the band. If you look at that set list, it's pretty incredible. They touch on almost every album up to that point in a really good way. It was not an off night. You know, they were really good. All the songs were played to completion for the most part, except for Fox on the Run uh, and Left of the Dial. But, you know, it was a really good representation of a band whose legacy is built so much about being a live band. Um, so anyway, that came out and it was very successful in terms of sales. So it allowed us to do Dead Man's Pop, which was a much more ambitious project. But now we've got some momentum. So we thought, um, let's try one more thing. And, you know, the Please to Meet Me is a really great album, unique in a way. Again, it was cut as a three piece. It was the first record they did outside of Minneapolis. They did it in Memphis. 
with uh, Jim Dickinson producing, a lot of other people involved in the session. So it's a kind of special thing. And also they had done, you know, the band started making that record in the summer of 86 in Minneapolis. They're doing some demos at Blackberry Way Studios with Bob Stinson still in the band. And then, you know, obviously he, through that process, he split with the band. They moved, go to Memphis and make this record, which originally they, there was some thought of making it a double album. So there was a lot of material, a lot of story there. And again, kind of a journey within this from the start to the finish of making that record. Um, so we thought, well, let's, let's do that. And it's, you know, one of their most beloved records, probably their most beloved uh, along with Tim major label record, but really it's a, it's a, it's a very, unusually in some ways cohesive record, I think a complete, you know, some people prefer Tim, some people prefer Let It Be, but I think in terms of a sustained performance, it's probably their best record. Um, and a lot of that is due to where they were recording, you know, Arden Studios in Memphis and with Jim producing. So, so we basically went through and are telling the story of the recording of that record, you know, with the Blackberry Way demos, um, with the, uh, which only a few of those had been out. So it's Bob's last session. And then they do some stuff without Bob in Blackberry way, them going down to Memphis where they did kind of almost a demo session in Memphis at Arden. Then the album in the main, which we have a different a kind of some alternate mixes of these rough mixes that they did when the band was still there and left before Jim kind of got in and started doing some, uh, you know, light studio trickery with uh, the Fairlight sampler and moving things around. So there's a kind of two iterations of the album. There's also the thing, one of the things I'm most excited about, um, you know, that Please to Meet Me has been out on vinyl a few times in recent years, you know, uh, as blue vinyl or this. So the LP portion of it is the rough mix is just to give people a different kind of thing that they can buy on vinyl. But within the CD package and the digital, there is a remaster of the original album, which is excellent. It's the best sounding version of this record. Um, Perkins, who did uh, all the Dead Man's Pop stuff for us, handled that, and he's just a he's a fan and a, and a just a genius as far as you know the audio stuff. And we consulted with uh, Jim Dickinson's son, Luther Dickinson, who's in the North Mississippi All Stars, because he really knows his father's work. And Jim was always not not unhappy, but there had been some problems originally with the mastering of it, and so it just never. I don't think that record ever sounded like it did in the studio, and so we're trying to get it to where what Jim wanted it to sound like. Again, it's mastering, so it's subtle, and it was made, uh, that album was recorded digitally on a very early digital machine, so it kind of has that particular weird kind of please to meet me sound, but it does, this version does sound incredible in terms of like the bass frequencies and everything. So, you know, it's like with all these things, you're trying to be complete, you know, we're including the stuff that was on the 2008 uh, reissue and some of the stuff that was on the um, uh, all for nothing compilation from that, you know, just get it all in one place with a very nice package. We've got like a 20 plus page booklet. I've got a new oral history of that record. We've got probably 70, 50 or 60 new photos people haven't seen. Um, some they have, but very small and some they have never seen before. So it's a really nice package. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smaller package. It's three CDs, one LP, as opposed to the four CDs of uh, dead man's pop, but it's a really cool thing, you know, just to kind of focus on that and you hear, the songs evolving again, you know, starting with Bob, then without Bob, then early sessions in Memphis, all sessions in Memphis, finished album, and then gathers all these, you know, outtakes, rarities, all that kind of stuff. And then there's four or five, um, four or five Tommy uh, Paul songs that have been bootlegged or versions of been bootlegged. They're coming out for the first time, like Run for the Country, Learn How to Fail, things like that. Um, you know, ballady stuff that for various reasons they left off. And then the thing I'm most excited about is we've, we're officially releasing, you know, one of the songs, um, Trouble on the Way is a Tommy song that he was doing that has been bootlegged. All this is a different take, completely cleaned up version. And then there's three or four Tommy songs, uh, three other ones, yeah, 
uh, uh, from the Blackberry Way sessions, and they're just incredible. They're really great things. So there's this whole there was this whole other strain or vein of stuff that was being done by Tommy during those sessions that nobody's ever heard. So you know, again, like with all this stuff, we're just telling the story, expanding the story, focusing on different things, trying to gather the stuff that's been out there and keep it in print because often nothing's out of print. And I think even the 2008 thing is technically out of print as far as a physical product. So, um, so yeah, so it comes out October 9th. Uh, and there's also one of the other things we did because the replacements don't really have any officially licensed merch right now. We're doing as part of the bundles, um, deluxe bundles, the super deluxe bundles, you get, um, there's some merch pieces that if you get that and, and, you know, we try to do that. So it's really just kind of a, almost a gift for the fans. Yeah. It costs a little bit more, but you're getting like a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, all this stuff at the price. It would probably cost you one t-shirt if you're buying at a show. So, you know, we've, we've been very lucky that people have responded really well to live at Maxwell's and dead man's pop. So I wanted to make sure that we kind of had a little, you know, and, and Jason at Rhino, Jason Jones at Rhino, I wanted to make sure that we had something special. Oh, that, I mean, that's the one I, I, I ordered the one with the t-shirt because it's funny you mentioned t-shirts um, because they don't have any official merch anymore. And they, yeah, they from to, the reunion. yeah, they got to get on that because like, I've had a lot of people say like, even on the Facebook group, you know, the Paul Westerberg, like, where can I get official merch? You know, their website, like they, yeah, like, well, people will buy it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I mean, that's, I think. Eventually that'll happen. They'll have an official merch store, uh, hopefully through Rhino because they, they do a really good job of it. But this was just kind of the starter of it. So in the meantime, until they get that going, we thought, well, we'll do some please to meet me specific stuff. And uh, yeah. it was super, it was very enticed. That's why I was like, yeah. I don't, they don't have any official shirts. So gotcha. you know, gotta, gotcha. gotta grab it. But I was going to say too, not even will you do more, but can you do more? Because people will buy them. Like if yeah, you I, could do it for every, like they have, um, <laughs> they have, uh, you know, like you said, those extra songs on the, all those 2008 reissues. And I'm sure they could all be made into. Well, there's, there's a finite amount of stuff. I mean, for records like uh, Tim, there isn't a whole lot of extra, you know, in a weird way, if we were going to do a Tim reissue, we would have done it with that live at Maxwell's, but the live at Maxwell's, it's sort of boring, but basically we knew that that could be successful and I, we needed to start with something successful and, and sort of modestly priced or whatever and simple to be able to do this other stuff. So, you know, some of the records, there isn't as much material. Some of them there is. I think we just kind of make an assessment each time out. is like, is there something worthwhile, valuable from a content perspective that we can do with, with this album or this project? Um, so I don't know exactly what form or what's left. I mean, certainly you know, Maxwell's was essential because, you know, you got to have a good sounding multi-track live of the band in their prime, you know, with a great set list. So boom, that's that. With Dead Man's Pop, obviously it was a unique situation in that there was, there was another version of that record that, you know, we knew existed or could exist uh, or was, had, had originally been intended plus some, another multi-track live show. And then these other sessions they did at Bearsville. So it was like, we got to do this. And, and that was something I think Paul was particularly interested in doing, having the right version of that record out ultimately. Uh, and then what pleased to meet me is again, one of those records where they recorded a lot, you know, they were not a band typically to record a ton. Um, what certainly is the career went on, but there was a lot of stuff recorded for that album. And, and it's, and some of it's come out in bits and pieces here and there. So we're gathering all that, adding more, adding the demos and adding, you know, uh, uh, th these rough mixes. So, so yeah, you know, as long as we feel like we're still putting out good stuff that 
have, makes sense and expands and tells the story in a, in an interesting way, we'll keep doing it. You know, obviously can't do it forever, but we might have one or two more sort of in the offing, hopefully. If this, I know. Uh, I'm starting to look for, like every fall, like I'm getting this, you know what I mean? So I'm, well, you know, the other thing is compared to a lot of bands, their catalog has been underserved. You know, I mean, they basically, you look, they were, uh, you know, they broke up in 91. There was a collection just of Warner stuff in 97. Um, and then in 04 or 06, they did the, the best of with the two new songs. And then in 08, there was a thing. So there's like, you know, 10 years in catalog terms is a long time. And they never did anything. You know, there was never, never a real live album. There was never any kind of like, you know, retro going back through the stuff. So, so relative to any number of bands who've had their albums reissued three times in three different versions and have had 50, you know, live things. And they're, they're, the audience is there and it's like, they've been underserved. So, you know, we're, we're getting a late start <laughs> to a certain extent, but you know, I, I just felt like, you know, we've got certainly a few valid things that we can do and, and people seem to be responding. So as long as that's happening and the content is there, hopefully we can do more, you know? Yeah. And there's, you I mean, there's clearly a lot of care that goes into it. I'm a person that loves liner notes. So, you know, when I get it and I see you've done all that research, you know, that went into the book going into these liner notes, like that's great. And then I mean, with Dead Man's Pop, there was, that was a little bit more closer to the, the book and with a lot of extra stuff and some things. Cause there was so much stuff I couldn't get in the book or didn't really, you know, you don't need to know 2000 words about the one show in Milwaukee that they did. But um, with this new uh, Please to Meet Me, it's, I did it as an oral history um, so it's really cool because so many of the people actually involved in the making of that record are gone now, all the Arden guys, Dickinson, the engineers, you know, everybody's gone. So, and I had done multiple interviews with them. Most of that never got in the book. So it's kind of an interesting thing to see, you know, just to do it that way. So we approach that differently. And also we just found a ton of really cool photos and, uh, I just think it's a, you know, it's, that's a, it's an interesting record because it was the replacements out of their element for the first time working as a three piece in Memphis, working with all these, you know, kind of blues and soul musicians, uh, session players and Dickinson, who, uh, who was a larger than life character. So the story is really interesting. The photos are really good. And, and I think, you know, uh, it's certainly this not quite the revelation that Dead Man's Pop is, because obviously that was a whole unique thing. But but if you're a fan and you know that record and love that record, you're going to hear so many different interesting things on this on this box that I think people are going to be really happy with. I can't wait. And um, also uh, later that month, or no, I'm sorry, in September uh, for Record Store Day, we get incarcerated on vinyl. Do you have anything to, did you have anything to do with that? Is there any special? Yeah, I mean, that's just obviously, that's the straight, I mean, it's the complete incarcerated that was included in Dead Man's Pop. But obviously, you know, people often complain the the, the, the new vinyl uh, uh, warriors are like, oh, why can't you put everything on vinyl? Um, there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, when we put out live from Maxwell's, uh, which we put out on vinyl and CD and digital, obviously too, half of what we sold was CD, believe it or not. And that was in 2017. So obviously there's an older demographic who still likes their CDs or their high end, you know, CD consumers. Um, so that was vinyl. The problem with the bigger buck sets of doing them all vinyl uh, is they just become extremely prohibitive in terms of cost. Uh, and so typically the way we'll do it is, you know, you get a piece of vinyl, like with Dead Man's Pop, it was the remix of, of, or the real mix of, of, of uh, don't tell a soul dead man's pop. And then, and then, you know, the other stuff is available on CD and digital, but with the incarcerated almost as a companion to live at Maxwell, since it's kind of represent we we decided to do the, it's a triple vinyl. Um, 
uh, complete. So, and that was obviously supposed to come out in April, Record Store Day, kind of an add-on to that. But you know, everything got pushed and postponed. So, hopefully, that doesn't get lost in the shuffle because it's a it's a really beautiful, again, pressing and mastering of that uh, on vinyl. And uh, and uh, but you know, I, I I view the live things, both Maxwell's and that, as kind of you know true catalog pieces, all these things that we're doing, you know, obviously a little less so with Please to Meet Me, but I feel like Live at Maxwell's, you know, you got the eight albums and you've got Live at Maxwell's. That's part of their main catalog. I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's oh, yeah. part of that. And I think Dead Man Pop in its own way, even though it's kind of an exploration is that too. And, uh, and I think, you know, the, the incarcerated, you know, sort of being as a standalone thing is, is, is kind of, just continuing that. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to, we're going to do episodes on all of them. So nice. like, like we're, we'll do dead man's pop. Like I'm excited. I was super excited to, you know, hear that and we'll do it on Maxwell. So we have, we have a lot of content <laughs> for the next, yeah, we'll keep coming up with content for you. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, just one last question is a question we ask all our guests. So if you had to pick a favorite replacement song, what would it be and why? Man, that's so tough. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the usual thing is like, if you catch me on a different day, the answer would be different. I mean, in a way, I really love the version of uh, Portland that's on the Dead Man's Pop Box set, which is more or less the same as the one that was released, but it's not, it's not quite the same. And if you listen to it, it was one of the things I found and discovered when we were going through tapes is... Um, there's a rundown where they're kind of Paul's like going through the song acoustic at first. And, and then, you know, you hear the full version. Uh, and again, this is specifically on the version that's on the dead man's pop box set. But as you hear it, he's playing the first chords and you hear in the background, Tommy singing treatment bound over the chords of Portland. And in a funny way, they, those two songs treatment bound in Portland are kind of companions. You know, one is the story of the band in 83 as they're just sort of setting out. And then this is the story of the band in 88 where things are a little bit more grim, uh, but it's just such a beautiful kind of, you know, originally Treatment Bound was called, the was supposed to be called The Ballad of the Replacement. So I, I feel like Treatment Bound and Portland are both kind of two parts of The Ballad of the Replacements. And, and I, I love both those songs, but I think particularly the the uh, Dead Man's Pop version of Portland is, uh, is, is maybe for now my favorite, but you know, you ask me tomorrow. Cool. That's cool though. Yeah. And, um, and then do you have a favorite, maybe Paul solo, uh, bash and pop, something like oh, that? Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a big, I did actually in the expanded bash and pop, uh, that Omnivore put out, which is another really great, uh, uh, you know, kind of sort of expanded version of that album. I did the liner notes for that. And I just, I love, love, I love Tommy stuff in general. And I'm, that's why I'm excited about the place to meet me thing that people will be able to hear some of this stuff that, that they haven't heard before of his songs, but I, I'm a, I'm a big Bash and Pop fan. I love that, and both records, but that first record, you know, the, the original Bash and Pop LP, Friday Night is Killing Me. Um, I just think that's, you know, it's just a great, great record. It's a, you know, this guy kind of exploding with these songs and still kind of figuring things out, but also the recording, Don Smith, who was a Tom Petty engineer and Keith engineer, Rolling Stones engineer. I just think that's one of the best sounding rock and roll records you know, really maybe ever made, certainly in that era. And I know, you know, a lot of people kind of feel that way that just, just the, the, the sounds, the tones, the, the, the engineering, just the way that record kind of jumps out um, and, and plays. It's just a beautiful thing. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, and I love a lot of Paul stuff. I think, you know, some of Paul's, my favorite songs are things that weirdly he hasn't uh, put out. There's a song called uh, Devil Raised a Good Boy, which I think, there's part of that he put on that 49 minutes compilation, you know, that kind of weird, uh, digital. Uh, 
digital thing, but it's, it's really a seek. That song's another sequel. It's kind of a sequel to uh, Johnny's going to die. It's about Devil is the good boy. It's about Johnny thunders um, and sort of Johnny thunders being his tutor or mentor. And so there's a snatch of that or a little part of that on the 49 minutes, but like, you know, stuff like that. He's just got, and, and I think originally his intention was uh, to have the Ramones record that it was like, there was a period where he was writing songs and kind of pitching them to people early solo uh, uh, period. And, and De I think devil raised the good boy was one of them. And he pitched it to the Ramones. And uh, I think the story was that Johnny Ramone heard it and said it had, it had too many chords. So <laughs> Sounds it, had, about right. it had four as opposed to three. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I like the little weird corners of Paul's the solo catalog the best, but you know, I stereo mono, I think is a vastly underrated thing. Uh, you know, I mean, at the time people were kind of losing their shit over it, but, and, and it recently came out on a, a vinyl edition, but I just think, you know, anybody else puts out that record, you know, it's considered an amazing all time great, but you know, expectation is a funny thing with Paul. It's like people, like I said, I think people responded well to that and really like it. Probably some people consider it the, the, the high point of his solo catalog, but I just think that's like an all, another all time yeah. great and, set of songs. And because you know? I always managed to mention uh, Dag Nasty in the podcast, I wanted to add that I, sometimes I forget that Brian Baker played in Bash and Pop for a yeah, 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 yeah. He was supposed to be in that. They had a, they, Bash and Pop eventually be, just basically became perfect. They changed the name, you know, Tommy's later band. Um, who also put out a really great record that they recorded with Jim Dickinson in, in, in Arden that came out many years after the fact, obviously it's called, I think it ended up being called once, twice, three times, and maybe, but that yeah. one, originally it was called seven days a week. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, man, I think, you know, uh, both those guys and Slim's, Slim's records, those two records that you know, uh, are available now, like a double LP and stuff like that. And even some of Chris's stuff is really interesting, but like, I just think Tommy is a very underrated, uh, particularly that first Bash and Pop record and the second Bash and Pop record that came out more recently is really good. And so I'm just excited for people to kind of, you know, those are the things you asked if I'm a diehard fan, which I don't think I really answered. Yes, you know, obviously uh, I, I wouldn't have stuck with it this long if I didn't have some affection for the music. You know, I, when I was starting to write the book, I, I talked to a very experienced author and he said, you know, whatever you do, just make sure you really like and are interested in your subject because when, when you get books written by people who sort of lose interest, you can tell. And uh, hopefully I didn't, you know, being a real, real hardcore fan and, and really interested in them as a, both in their music and in their story, hopefully, it, uh, the, hopefully that, you know, you can tell my interest never waned, still hasn't after 13 years of doing Yeah, that. no, absolutely. And plus we got all these upcoming projects that you're involved in. So it's, yeah. it's, it's awesome. Well, so thank you so yeah. much for your well, time. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, me, guys. Thank I appreciate it. And, and thank you for uh, doing this podcast. Obviously, interesting stuff, uh, you know, for me and to me and to all the fans. So it's a, you're doing a good service as well. So I appreciate you taking the time. for this week folks thanks for listening um we're looking forward to you joining us in our future explorations of this essential midwestern punk super thankful again that bob uh came on the podcast and allowed us to was so generous with his time and allowed us to answer ask so many questions and um yeah agreed yeah i was uh you know when when we started this podcast we had like you know we had a list of 
and we still have a list. I didn't destroy it, <laughs> but we have a list of people we wanted on the show. And of course, friends we've had on. Um, and then we had like people that we don't know personally, yeah. but would love to have on. And, you know, Bob was at the top of the list. Right. Because we, you know, we reference Trouble Boys all the time. Um, and, you know, absolutely just love the book and, and love what he's doing with, with the band. I mean, he, you know, we touched on the interview, but he, he wrote the book. And then a year later, we get live at Maxwell's that he mm-hmm. helped produce. Uh, then, you know, two years later, we get Dead Man's Pop. And then now we have this year the uh, Please to Meet Me mm-hmm. Deluxe Box. So, yeah. and, you know, supposedly there'll be some more stuff coming, hopefully. And yeah. we will be here to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So next week, um, we're back to album discussion, episode 12. We'll be talking about The Replacements, 1985 Sire Records debut, Tim. So we're really looking forward to that. So Mm -hmm. thank you very much for joining and we'll talk to you then. Oh, and a special thanks also, by the way, to uh, our, our coin flipper, our unbiased coin flipper, Alex. Thanks. This episode goes out to Alex. (laughs) So thanks everybody. Take care. Take care. Mm Yeah.